1997, the death of a princess and her lover rocked the world. Ten years later, it led to the longest, most expensive and most sensational inquest in British legal history. Hundreds of witnesses were called. There were arguments, lies, tears and accusations as intimate details of their private lives were dissected on the world stage. Yet before the court case had even begun, the media had already decided what the verdict should be. However, in Britain and around the world, millions of ordinary people were convinced, and after the inquest still are convinced, that the deaths of Princess Diana and Dodie Fayed were no accident. I think it's murder. Murder. It was murder. For me, I think it was a murder. Murder. My opinion, there can be no doubt that she was actually murdered. When the woman left a note saying, FYI, if I'm dead, here's how it's going to happen, and then it happens exactly like that, I think someone should pay attention. I mean, I, I just know our initial reaction was, well, they finally killed her, because we're used to it. I think it was murder. If you go to a bar, you'll find three people go, ooh, but the royals did it, didn't they? Oh, of course Diana was bumped off. She knew she was going to be bumped off. I wasn't sure if Diana's death was an accident or murder, but I suspected a cover-up by the British establishment, an elaborate exercise in burying the truth rather than uncovering it. I suspected a conspiracy, but this isn't just the old story about a conspiracy before the crash, it's about a conspiracy after the crash. We all know that the biggest scandals are always the cover-ups. I mean, it isn't the Watergate, it's not the break-in, it's the cover-up which is the big scandal. When you have the head of the British security services calmly announcing we have never killed anybody, in the last 50 years, I laughed out loud. What's the point of them then? I didn't believe it. And so if you don't believe that, where does that leave the rest of the establishment evidence? I decided to watch and wait, then tell the story that the press and TV news wouldn't tell. The result is a documentary that reveals what really happened during those six months in the Royal Courts of Justice. It is the inquest of the inquest. The royal family likes to present itself as part of a benign and freedom-loving tradition in films such as The King's Speech. As you will have gathered by now, this film is the antidote to The King's Speech. The inquest was held in the royal family's own court, so is it any wonder that the coroner, the royal representative in charge, decided that the key royal suspects need not even appear at the inquest to be questioned? Right from the inquest's first day, I thought, what if this woman's name had been Diana Smith, and she'd written in a note which had been subsequently unveiled, my husband Charles Smith wants me to die in a car accident. And subsequently she did. In any other family or in any other country, surely Charles Smith would have been called to the witness stand at the inquest into his wife's death. Every word you hear from the courtroom has been meticulously reconstructed just as it happened. I also had my own undercover reporter in the press tent, Richard Wiseman, listening to the journalists' conversations. Every word you hear them say was noted down exactly and precisely timed and dated. I thought when we started that I had about a fortnight before somebody tripped over my notes and realised that I actually wasn't making notes on the inquest, I was making notes on what the other journalists were saying to each other. And the longer it went on, the more I thought, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. For once, a reporter was doing the dirty on his colleagues, so the world could learn how they only reported one side of the story, ignoring anything that didn't fit their pre-written script. Well, this looks like six months of my life, I'm not gonna get back. 
absolute fucking nightmare, isn't it? There's a road accident, for Christ's sake, get over it. Young girls identify with the person who becomes the uh, consort of the king. The big idea of being a princess and becoming queen is a, is a fantasy. There are fairy stories about it. It's a constant fantasy for little girls. Diana dreamed of becoming a princess too, but unfortunately for her, when her fairy tale fantasy came true, the reality was not a dream, it was a nightmare. The royal family, it really is true, are much more, at least in that generation, are much more interested in animals than they are in human beings. The royals are not a sentimental bunch and treat their wives like farmers treat cattle. They're not big on romance. They're very big on breeding. And I suppose in love. Of course. <laughs> Whatever in love means. <laughs> Whatever in love means. Perhaps that was Diana's first intimation that this would be a loveless marriage. First of all, Mr. Al-Fayed, you have been saying for years that you believe your son was not the victim of an accident, that when he was with Lady Di, the royal family was so upset with her dating him, the fact that he was Muslim, they had him bumped off. Definitely. In other words, this was a, a hit, a murder, and no, not an accident. Absolutely. He's a terrorist murder. Okay. It's not a murder, it's a slaughter of those bloody racist royal family. You think Prince Philip is so smart that he can uh, mastermind all of this and orchestrate it? Yeah, he's vicious. I, yeah, of course. You think a guy like that will accept? My son, different religion, different nationality, mm -hmm. will be the future stepfather of the future king? You think this bloody, racist family, right, will accept that? I feel for you. If my daughters were in that car with Lady Di and this was, uh, you know... Of course uh, you'd want to get to the bottom of it. I'd want to get yeah. to the bottom of it, and I don't blame you. Mr. Alfayed, just as a background, are you a self-made guy? I mean, did you just come to... Uh, that's right, that's self-made. All I know is he owns Harrods, and that store is amazing. I think the whole bloody thing's racist. Uh, I think the Mohammed, from the day that he came here and had the temerity to bid for the top people's store, has been considered to be some sort of a wog, nigger, if you like, who has sort of thrust himself on British society. Born in Alexandria under British colonial rule, Mohammed quickly left behind his humble Egyptian origins, making a fortune as a middleman for British firms in the Middle East, and whilst doing so, becoming a global billionaire. Proving that it's not where you come from that matters, it's where you end up. And he's ended up in a very nice place indeed. Besides having owned Harrods for 25 years, Mohammed Al-Fayed owns the Paris Ritz, a villa in Saint-Tropez, a Scottish castle, and a Tudor mansion on the edge of London. But he chooses to spend much of his time in this tent, so he can be close to the burial place of his son, Dodi. He remembers the night of the tragedy all too clearly. Straight away, going to the mortuary to see Dodi, you know. It was a terrible scene, you know, it was so difficult. And everything worked in my mind that's definitely there. They killed him. You know, and this is the place which he basically lived most of the time. He liked to play polo. This is the whole field which I planted as a forest. I come sometime here, I have when I'm here, I have breakfast. I sit with him because we believe soul comes out, you know. Maybe he's watch his soul watching us and talking to us.
Who knows what fate will produce? Who knows what circumstances will provoke? The crash happened on the 31st of August, 1997, the last day of an extraordinary month for Diana. There was the whirlwind romance with Dodie, fevered speculation in the press that she was about to get married, even that she might be pregnant. Where would it all end? Would the mother of the future King of England get hitched to a Muslim and have children by him too and set up a rival court in the USA? The princess of the world at that time the girl everybody wanted. I saw him with her. I saw the house in Malibu that Dodie was gonna buy for them. Who knows what might have happened if she'd lived. So whether you think it was an accident or murder, one fact is incontrovertibly true. It was chillingly convenient for the Windsors that Diana died when she did. The last holiday she spent with her boys, with me for nearly two weeks, she was worried and she told me exactly what going to happen to her. So she definitely rocked the boat in, a, in an extraordinary fashion. And she's still rocking it. She won't go quietly, that's the problem. I'll fight till the end. It's day one of the inquest into Diane and Dodie's deaths. Some say the cause was a drunken driver called Henri Paul. Some blame the paparazzi. Others suspect foul play, a staged crash involving a mysterious white Fiat Uno, perhaps on the orders of Prince Philip. The French report into the crash has been kept secret. The British report was riddled with contradictions. Several coroners came and went, and attempts to hold the inquest without a jury were overturned. So here we are, at last, at the start of an inquest that may finally turn the full floodlights onto the workings of the British establishment and the royal family. The media call this the Diana inquest, forgetting that three people died in that crash, not just Diana, but Dodie fired and driver Henri Paul too. Apparently there is a meritocracy even in death, and some demises are considered more important than others. That's me, Keith Allen, outside the Royal Courts of Justice. Note that name, Royal Courts of Justice. A sure sign of impartiality in a case where the credibility of the royal family is on trial. In the Royal Courts of Justice with a judge, or coroner as he's called here, who has sworn an oath of allegiance to the Queen and his Queen's counsellors on every side, and has already said that he is minded not to call senior royals as witnesses. Historically, the relationship between the royal family and the courts has been difficult, mainly because every judge has taken an oath of allegiance to the Queen. Now, if you've taken an oath of allegiance to the Queen and you have a legal case involving the monarchy, I mean, you're going to be biased, aren't you? Curiously, the media have decided the outcome of the inquest before it has even begun and have already declared it a waste of time and money. Many media organisations, including the BBC, have even sent their royal reporters to cover it rather than their legal reporters. Our royal correspondent, Nicholas Witchell, is at the High Court. Nick. Yet Diana was no longer royal at the time of her death, and BBC royal reporters are required to spend their lives shamelessly sucking up to the palace and presenting the Windsors to the public in a favourable light. So what chance is there of impartiality from them? 
With most people getting their news about the inquest from journalists with such an obvious bias, I thought it was important that somebody with an open mind also reported on it. Quis custodiet ipsos custodes? Who judges the judges? Well, on this occasion, it seemed to be me and my mole. From the outset, it was clear that the coroner was firmly on the side of the establishment, hardly surprising, as he's part of it. I thought the story of the opening day would be the coroner points the jury in the direction of it being an accident, which he clearly did. And also the fact he was anticipating what the former leader of the London police was going to say without him being there. I anticipate that Lord Stevens will give evidence that he was trying to reassure the Pauls that their son had not been as drunk as a pig as had been alleged in some newspapers. Seems to me that the establishment have been talking to each other and squaring their stories before the inquest gets underway. Why aren't the media suspicious? This is really fishy. There's something very odd going on around here. And what makes it all the more odd is that the, the juiciest bits, the bits that are striking me as being the murkiest of all, aren't being reported anywhere. And it wasn't so much that there was a conspiracy amongst other journalists, that there was an established consensus. And anyone who sort of thought or spoke or wrote outside that consensus were regarded as being odd. This has interesting echoes of The Merchant of Venice. Because if you go back to The Merchant of Venice, I mean, the fundamental point is about Shylock, he's different. He's Jewish in this case, but also Oriental. Despite what I remember being told at school, Shakespeare's Shylock wasn't actually a bad character at all. He was just a foreigner who wanted justice, but was swindled out of it by the Venetian establishment. Here's Fayed, the Oriental going and saying, by the way, I want a fair trial. And they're saying, well, no, just a minute, you know, it's all over. I mean, don't bother about it. Don't be serious. It was an accident. You know, we didn't really mean it. No, he said, I'm coming into court. I'm coming, I'm going to use your judicial system against you. And, of course, he's robbed in court. When you read that, you can also read it as an essay in the way in which the establishment, the Venetian establishment, suddenly find themselves confronted by an outsider who's demanding his rights. He's saying, all I want is justice. Can I have justice, please? You set up all this judicial system. I'd like it, please. And they want to really say, well, it's not for you, you bastard. The point of the inquest is to investigate these suspicious circumstances surrounding the crash. But will it answer these questions? Was it pure coincidence that Diana told many people she would be deliberately killed in a car crash? Why did the CCTV cameras along the route apparently not record anything? Word driver Henri Paul's blood samples tampered with to make him appear wildly drunk, even though he seemed to be sober. Why were Diana's phone calls being bugged by the American Secret Services? And who was driving the white Fiat Uno that may have caused the crash? Poor Diana. All the royals wanted was a brood mare crossed with a clothes horse. Have a little love on a little honeymoon. You got a little dish and you got a little spoon. A little bitty house and a little bitty yard. A little bitty dog and a little bitty car. But it's all right to be a little bitty. A little hometown or a big old city. Might as well share, might as well smile. Life goes on for a little bitty while. Life did indeed go on for a little bitty while until the brood mare turned out to be a kicker who bolted through the stable door and went to get her oats elsewhere. The establishment didn't want the idea of a, of a future king of England having a Muslim half-brother or sister. There's only one conspiracy theory, as far as I'm concerned, to do the death of Diana, and that is a conspiracy that's grown up 
that it was an accident. Before a single witness had been called. I think the remaining thing that needs to be done is the jury bailiffs need to be sworn for the journey to Paris. See you in Paris. This is where the jury will gather to retrace Diana and Dodie's final journey. We'll have to be careful not to film the jury because we could be sent to prison for contempt if we show their faces, even though anyone who bothers to come here can see perfectly well who they are. And oh, look, oh, there's Posh Spice, who just happens to walk out of the Ritz while the world's cameras are here. Diana was a celebrity who was supposedly hounded by the paparazzi, yet now here's another celebrity using the inquest as a chance for a photo opportunity with the paparazzi. They never learn. Ah, there's the legal charabang. This bus is officially a courtroom, we've been told, and must be treated with the same dignity as the royal courts of justice themselves. But, oh dear, first it appears to have knocked a policeman off his motorcycle and now, and now a tyre has just burst, thereby somehow undermining the majesty of the law. After the jury had visited the crash scene, so did I. This Where? Yeah. This is it? Yeah. yeah is this the yes. tunnel? Yeah, you didn't know? No. As well as endlessly debating whether Dodie might have impregnated Diana, the inquest devoted several weeks to a minute investigation of her periods, contraceptives and sexual habits. It's almost as though the establishment wanted to demythologize her in the eyes of ordinary people by putting her uterus on public display. And by going in with Dodie Fayed and falling in love with him, as I believe she absolutely did, head over heels with the guy, you've got the ultimate cocktail of danger for the British establishment. Perhaps it was unwise for Diana and Dodie to get together, but they clearly fell deeply in love. And thinking about the way their lives were prematurely snuffed out had a strangely melancholic effect on me that night. Right from the start, the circumstances surrounding the crash were suspicious. Within a day, before tests on Henri Paul's blood had even been completed, the French authorities had leaked a story to the press that this was a simple accident caused by a driver who was drunk as a pig. Although the only alcohol he seems to have consumed that night was two Ricards, less than one quarter of the amount the French authorities claimed he'd drunk. He certainly seemed sober minutes before he drove a Mercedes, and within hours of the crash, French police had allowed a road-sweeping van to wash away all the evidence. What a coincidence. That's exactly what the Pakistan police did in 2007, when they immediately hosed down the place where Benazir Bhutto was assassinated. It's so much easier to claim that a death was just an accident if the evidence has been washed away. 
It's like my electrician. I was at home last week when he arrived, told him what I was doing, and he immediately turned round and said, oh, yeah, but MI5 did that, didn't they? And the trouble is, intelligent people believe this shit and get carried away with it. I mean, people do love a conspiracy theory, don't they? Ah, the gentleman of the press. This is the only way most people get to know what's going on at the inquest. And there's no doubt that almost all of the media had already reached their verdict long before the inquest started. Yet most of the hacks covering it didn't understand the detailed evidence they were hearing and had no idea of how the establishment was manipulating events behind the scenes and deciding what could and could not be said. The coroner even prevented the jury from knowing about the state of the relationship between Philip and Diana. The prince's letters were redacted, as the court called it, or censored into incomprehensibility, as the rest of us call it. When a close friend of Diana's wanted to tell the inquest about deeply hostile letters that the prince had written to Diana not long before her death, she was forbidden to do so. Initially, I had great hopes for the inquest until I got the gagging order on me. Somebody came in and said, Oh, you're not allowed to mention the content of the Prince Philip letters. And in effect, there was, it's like having gagging orders slapped on me. The first one was making aspersions on her moral character. It was doubting her faithfulness to Charles before Harry was born. And you just wonder how many people have been paid off in this whole charade. It's not true fully transparent. There's a, if I've had a gagging order, other people have had a gagging order. Why weren't the press more suspicious? Well, journalists have to answer to their editors who answer to their proprietors who all want knighthoods. The upshot being that most journalists are instinctively pro-establishment and are unwilling to accept that the official story about Diana's death just does not make sense. Well, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. The most daunting aspect was the media attention. And I seem to be on the front of a newspaper every single day. And the higher the media puts you, place you, is the bigger the drop. Just after midnight on the 31st of August, 1997, Diana and Dodie left the Paris Ritz in a Mercedes driven by Henri Paul. Diana sat in the rear right seat. She habitually wore a seatbelt. But on this occasion, she did not put it on. When the car was subsequently examined by a crash expert on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, the rear right seatbelt was found to be defective. Had it been tampered with? Was this why Diana was not wearing a seatbelt that night? And why was the inquest not told about this? Some of the paparazzi outside the hotel set off in pursuit, but their scooters and motorcycles were unable to keep up with a much more powerful car. Police evidence given at the inquest confirmed that by the time the Mercedes entered the armor tunnel, all the pursuing paparazzi had been left far behind. Yet eyewitnesses saw several motorcycles and a white Fiat Uno surrounding the Mercedes and blocking its progress as it entered the tunnel. There was a very bright flash. Then the white Fiat Uno collided with the Mercedes, which lost control and crashed headfirst into a concrete pillar. All the other vehicles have never been identified. And they've certainly been excluded as being paparazzi because there was a very close analysis done of all the known paparazzi who were on duty that night. And they could all be ac accounted for.
So, who was riding those motorcycles? Who was driving the white Fiat Uno? Witnesses saw the Mercedes being closely pursued and surrounded by several motorcycles as it drove into the Alma Tunnel. Now, the jury in their verdict found that following vehicles were guilty of manslaughter. The media read following vehicles and translated into paparazzi. Now, the jury never said that. So the question is, who owned or who was driving the other vehicles, either motorcycle or car? The jury decided that these unidentified drivers had committed a criminal act. So why are neither the French nor British police trying to trace these killers? Do MI6 kill people? Are they allowed to? Sir Richard Dearlove said he was unaware of MI6 ever having assassinated anyone. When you have the head of the British security services calmly announcing we have never killed anybody in the last 50 years, I laughed out loud. What's the point of them, then? Now, we've all been to James Bond movies, thanks. We know the security services do a lot of dark stuff. So the idea that we're supposed to believe that in 50 years, the British secret agents have never actually killed anyone, I didn't believe it. And so if you don't believe that, where does that leave the rest of the establishment evidence? Of all the lies told to the inquest, the most absurd was that the British secret services have never killed anybody. This shameless lie was exposed by Richard Tomlinson, a former MI6 agent, who gave evidence to the inquest by video link from France. He couldn't come to Britain because if he had, he would have been instantly arrested. Tomlinson saw a secret MI6 plan to assassinate a Serbian leader in a car crash in a tunnel by flashing a very bright light into the driver's eyes. At first, I just thought it was a, a joke, and I... Uh... I refused to believe the officer when he told me about it because he first of all outlined it to me verbally and then I went back to see him a couple of days later for another matter and he sort of gave me a copy of the, he showed me the minute um, to sort of prove that he hadn't been joking about it and so that's I remember that very clearly well there have been other times in my life where I have been involved in in death yes but I can't talk about that curiously Several witnesses who were near the Alma Tunnel at the time of the crash reported seeing a bright flash seconds before the collision. Have you ever driven at night when some careless driver is coming at you with his headlights on full beam? Imagine that, a hundred times as bright in a narrow tunnel. The result would be exactly what happened to Diana and Dodie's car. I don't think many people would want me to be queen. Actually, when I say many people, I mean the establishment that I'm married into, because they've decided that I'm a non-starter. The question that haunts me is around the time of the crash, that she wasn't taken more rapidly to a hospital. There was a, a sort of time period that wasn't properly explained about her treatment on the ground. The crash occurred at 12.23 a.m. Dodie and Henri Paul died instantly. The bodyguard, Trevor Rees, was seriously injured. Diana was injured, but was conscious and alert. And had she received prompt hospital treatment, she could well have survived, but she didn't. Instead, an ambulance containing Dr. Jean-Marc Martino arrived at the scene. 
Although other ambulances were also present, he took sole charge of the princess and made a series of bizarre and disturbing decisions that sealed her fate. It took an astonishing 37 minutes after the crash for Dr. Martino to remove the still-conscious Diana from the Mercedes and put her in his ambulance. Odd, because the back of the car was undamaged. It took an extraordinary 81 minutes after the crash before the ambulance even set off for the nearby hospital. Oddly, it made no radio contact with Ambulance HQ throughout the journey. It took an inexplicable one hour and 43 minutes after the crash before the ambulance arrived at the nearby hospital, having traveled there at a snail's place on empty roads. By then, Diana's life was ebbing away. At the inquest, experts agreed that her life could have been saved had it not been for the suspiciously slow and furtive actions of Dr. Martino and his crew, the other members of which have never been officially identified or interviewed. There is no dispute that at uh, about 12.26, the emergency services in Paris were notified that there had been a serious car crash. There were two dead, two seriously injured. So all we needed at uh, 12.35, if I may say so through you, was one call saying, look, I think we may have a real problem here. Please be at the ready. That is precisely the conclusion that we would have put in our report. The BBC's chief royal correspondent used to pay particularly close attention. Here's the guy that considers himself to be effectively the Walter Cronkite of British television. He's in front of arguably the story of the decade. It's unfolding, but he doesn't even have to dig it up. It's happening right in front of him. And the guy falls asleep. And not just once, but several times. I do things differently because I don't go by a rule book, because I lead from the heart, not the head. And albeit that's got me into trouble in my work, I understand that. But someone's got to go out there and love people and show it. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, we should have known us by now. Our behavior is dumb. And if our chances expect to improve, it's going to take a lot more than trying to remove the other race or the other whatever from the face of the planet altogether. They call it the Earth, which is a dumb kind of name, but they named it right because we behave the same. We are dumb all over. Dumb all over, yes we are, dumb all over, near and far, dumb all over, black and white, people, we is not rap -tight. There was a powerful reason why these secret services of Britain, France and America might have wanted Diana dead. It was Diana's involvement in the campaign to ban landmines. A worldwide movement to ban anti-personnel landmines gathered speed during 1996 to everyone's surprise, even the world's most powerful politician was sympathetic to the ban. To end this carnage, the United States will seek a worldwide agreement as soon as possible to end the use of all anti-personnel landmines. Diana, Princess of Wales, took up the cause of the vengeance. In January 1997, she visited Angola, resulting in the greatest photo opportunity that the landmine campaign had ever had. Firing. Her involvement caused huge anger amongst governments. In Britain, government defence minister Earl Howe denounced her. Two newspapers this morning quoting a name minister described as a loose cannon. 
Simone Simmons was with Diana in February 1997 when a government defence minister made a threatening phone call warning the princess to end her involvement with the campaign, otherwise accidents could happen. The phone went in, in her little lounge and she picked it up and then called me over and there was a voice um, that was in the middle of a conversation saying, don't meddle in things you know nothing about. Accidents can happen. She went a bit pale. She took it as a threat. And she said that was Nicholas Soames. I don't know his voice, but it was very, very plummy. Uh, and she actually used a derogatory term. She said, doesn't he sound like he's talking with a cock in his mouth? Days before she died, Diana made another visit to landmine victims, this time in Bosnia. Again, there was global press coverage, which made her even more of an enemy to many powerful forces in the armaments industry. Diana was certain that her phones were being tapped by the British Secret Services. Every time she'd hear a click, she used to say, boys, time to change the tape. We now know that her calls were also being monitored by the American Secret Services. After years of denial, they finally admitted to having almost 1,200 pages of transcripts, although they refused to make most of them public, claiming it would threaten national security. Her landmine campaign was clearly infuriating the armaments industry, while her love affair with Dodi Fayed was infuriating the royal family and the British establishment. So there were an awful lot of people who wanted Diana and her Muslim lover dead. It's weird that at a time when you know the establishment can think of nothing worse than Dodi Fayed, son of Mohammed, marrying and possibly impregnating Diana, that she's conducting a major international offensive against landmines with all the crippling economic problems that would bring for the British establishment again. And, the British and, and America. And America. But if you add all these to the mix, then if you were ever going to do something dodgy to Diana, that's the time you would do it. She'd become trouble, as she used to say to me. I'm trouble to them. I won't go away. I won't go quietly. Presidents have been killed for less. I think it was an opportunist killing. Yeah. They, they had until September the 19th. Why until then? Because that was when the conference was going to take place in Oslo on landmines. Less than three weeks after the crash, the key Oslo meeting began. With Diana out of the way, most of the world's press didn't even bother to attend. When they killed Diana on, on the 31st of August, 19 days later, Bill Clinton was the only Western leader who voted against a ban on landmines, something he would never have done if she was alive. had he had to look in Diana's eyes. Many investigators believe that this was the real reason Diana was killed. Yet, the coroner barely raised the issue. Knowledge is power. In the years before Princess Diana was killed, she told many people that the British establishment was planning to eliminate her. Oh, of course Diana was bumped off. She knew she was going to be bumped off. But she always said she's not going to make old bones. Diana had left a note saying that she thought that somebody was going to kill her and that it would be in a car accident. Diana asked her lawyer, told him that she had from a very confidential source in the palace, Prince Philip, planning 
to get rid of her in a car accident. She wrote this letter to her butler, Paul Burrell, telling him that the royal family were planning her death. Diana said the same thing to her lawyer, Lord Mishkin, who made a note of a prediction. This old British establishment lawyer realized that the note could have devastating consequences for the royal family. So three weeks after her death, he handed it to Britain's chief policeman, Lord Condon. The police chief also realized its significance, so he concealed it and kept it secret for three years. The first question, and, and you've agreed, is, is there a legal obligation to hand over potentially relevant material? There's an unequivocal answer to that, which is yes. Agree? Yes, I do. That was Britain's top policeman admitting that he broke the law by concealing this devastating evidence. Right. And I'm going to make it very plain to you, Lord Condon, that uh, the reason why potentially relevant material was not handed over to the coroner is because you were sitting on it, knowing that something had gone wrong in Paris linked to the activities of British state agencies. You are suggesting, are you, that Lord Condon was part of a criminal conspiracy? Well, I'm suggesting, yes, that he's uh, part of an agreement. That is one of the most serious allegations that could ever be made of someone in my position, and I unequivocally, totally refute it as a blatant lie. If, in September 1997, this information had gone public, nobody would have spoken anymore about the paparazzi, about Henry Paul. The only thing the whole world would have focused on would have been Diana's fears, Diana's predictions on how she would be killed by the British establishment. In 1995, Diana summarized her fears in a phone call to a producer of this film. If you're a strong woman in my environment, you're a problem. So I'm a hell of a problem. I don't have time, an awful lot of time for hobbies, but keeping alive, one of them. Keeping alive, keeping alive, keeping alive, keeping alive. Sadly, she signally failed in this quest. Lord Condon wasn't the only senior policeman to hide the lawyer's note. Lord Stevens, his successor as police chief, concealed it for a further three years. Both men broke the law. Both men were made lords by the Queen. I'd like to be a queen of people's hearts, in people's hearts, but I don't see myself being queen of this country. Diana died soon after arrival at the hospital, and although she had been stripped of her royal status in life, in death, her corpse mysteriously became royal property. Within hours, royal representatives had given orders for her body to be partially embalmed, a process that conveniently made it impossible for anyone to tell if she had been pregnant. Attention then turned to the body of the driver, Henri Paul. Before blood tests had even been completed, the French authorities were already insisting that he was drunk as a pig, although the only alcohol he is known to have consumed that night were two single recards. This is Henri Paul minutes before the fatal crash. Far from looking drunk as a pig, he seems to be sober as a judge. An autopsy was carried out on Henri Paul's body by Professor Dominique Lecomte, a doctor who is notorious in France for covering up medical evidence that is likely to embarrass the state. If her own account is to be believed, she conducted the world's worst autopsy on the corpse of Henri Paul, committing at least 58 basic errors, Every medical expert at the inquest agreed that her results were not only inept, 
but biologically inexplicable too, and that her report was untruthful. We have Professor Lecomte giving an account of events which, on the face of it, cannot be true. So you are pushing at an open door. There are clear inconsistencies in Professor Lecomte's account. The blood tests carried out by Dr. Pepin were equally unbelievable. We are all agreed that the explanation offered by Dr. Pepin and Professor Lecomte together for carboxyhemoglobin concentrations in the blood samples is implausible and can be discounted. Yes, so one is left with either analytical error or a mystery. Suspicions grew at the inquest that the blood tested by Lecomte and Pepin had not come from Henri Paul at all, not least because it contained lethally high levels of carbon monoxide. The professor, you said you found it astonishing, the similarity. 1.73, 1 1.74, 1 1.75. What are you suggesting there? Does that suggest to you that the results have been cooked, or what? That would be my interpretation. You mentioned that one explanation is that the blood samples didn't, in fact, come from Henri Paul. That's the most obvious explanation, that it isn't actually Henri Paul's blood we're looking at. The idea of a classic switcheroo may sound far-fetched, but every scientist involved in the inquest signed a joint statement saying that the blood test results for Henri Paul were biologically inexplicable. Professor Lecomte and Dr. Pepin refused to attend the inquest, even though as citizens of the European Union, they were legally obliged to. They were protected by the French government, who publicly cited reasons of public order for the refusal. However, it has since emerged that the real reason was the protection of state secrets and the essential interests of the nation. This is the law the Ministry of Justice has used to help and protect Professor Lecomte and Dr. Pépin. So the fact, the legal fact, is that there are state secrets that are protected and that Professor Lecomte and Dr. Pépin know about. In 2006, a team of scientists offered to carry out DNA analysis on some of the samples to determine if the blood really was Henri Paul's. They were told by the French authorities that the samples no longer exist. Well, my husband's side were very busy stopping me. Diana was unstable. They decided that was the problem. The inquest spent weeks examining Diana's love life in minute detail and considering whether she was pregnant when she died. But why? Whether Diana was pregnant or not, or whether she was actually going to marry Dodie Fayed or not, is not important. Mm -hmm. It's whether the establishment believed she was pregnant or believed she was going to marry Dodie. That's important. And there's no doubt at that moment the majority of them did believe both those things. What did become clear was that within hours of Diana's death, her body was pumped full of embalming fluid, so no pregnancy tests were possible. And soon after, she had her reproductive organs removed under the watchful eye of the royal coroner. There is a trip, the, the, you know, the trip from Paris, from 45, how can you embalm a body and very short distance of travel. Why do you think they embalmed her to hide the pregnancy? Because they had to corrupt the body because she was pregnant. She had to take all her guts. So was Diana pregnant at the time of her death? We'll never know for sure, because the French and British authorities destroyed the evidence. And the blood tests which were taken when she arrived at the hospital, and which could have confirmed if she had just become pregnant, have mysteriously vanished. 
But ask yourself this. Would the British establishment have allowed Muslim blood to enter the royal lineage? And how far would they be prepared to go to stop it happening? Deep down, we, we see them now as an establishment that are capable of murder, which is quite serious. If you want to be like me, you've got to suffer. There is no doubt that the entire inquest was skillfully manipulated by powerful, unelected forces to the advantage of the royal family. This could only happen because Britain is, in essence, a monarchy, not a democracy. Much of Britain still operates on a system of unelected power. And at its centre are the Windsors, the old aristocracy, and their vast wealth. Just as in medieval times, the royal family live a life of unfettered privilege with British taxpayers funding their lavish existence. <laughs> Where do we get off on this argument? Only one family, and by the way, a highly unrepresentative family, has the right to accede to the head of stateship of our country. Now, I think that is a fundamentally flawed argument, and I don't know how it can be used in the modern world. The idea of a hereditary ruler is as absurd as the idea of a hereditary mathematician. <laughs> Officially, the royal family cost British taxpayers £40 million a year, but that's just the tip of a very large iceberg. The royal palaces are maintained by the taxpayer, even private ones, such as Balmoral. Windsor Castle is theirs too, except, of course, when it burnt down, when the bill for rebuilding it also fell on the public purse. Their wealth includes the vast royal art collection, which is worth billions of pounds and belongs to the British people, yet the people aren't allowed to see it. In return, the royal family refused to obey many British laws, such as the 1968 Race Relations Act. As can be seen from this footage, there are very few non-whites in the royal household. Indeed, it is ironic that the ritual ceremony we are now watching is called Trooping the Colour, because as you can observe, there's barely a non-white face to be seen. The royal family are notorious for their racism. These phrases have all been said by the royals in public, so God alone knows what they say in private. This racism is nothing new. There was a close relationship between the British royal family and the Nazis during the 1930s, details of which remain a closely guarded secret. Were you surprised when you started to find out about, specifically, their relationship with high-ranking Nazis? I mean, Phillips especially. I was very surprised when I found out about Philip's sisters and their connection to Hitler. The fact that the Queen Mother and her husband were inclined more towards Hitler in the beginning. So why does Britain still tolerate its racist royal family? The only serious argument that defenders of the monarchy can muster nowadays is that the royals are good for tourism 
and even that is suspect. They're not good for tourism. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever someone says that, I always think, right, so countries that don't have a royal family then, like Ireland or France or America, no tourists ever go there then. Because <laughs> tourists would go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, look out and go, oh, I don't know, it's not a bad view, but the lack of a monarch spoils it somehow. <laughs> Despite presenting itself as a charming and picturesque relic of the past, the royal family retains a ruthless grip on power in 21st century Britain. It presides over a corrupt and corrosive honours system that keeps tens of thousands of public officials in permanent obedience to the monarchy, all hoping for a knighthood or an OBE in return for a lifetime's loyal service. These are the people who operate Britain's system of government. Judges, coroners, civil servants, police chiefs, permanent private secretaries, members of the secret services and privy councillors. When I became a cabinet minister, I was made a privy councillor. You swear that you will protect the Queen from all foreign prelates, potentates and powers and you will report on colleagues if they're disloyal and so on. And they read it to me and I said at the end, I didn't say it, I didn't agree. And they said, you don't have to agree. So I said, what do you mean? They said, we've administered the oath. Now that phrase, the administration of oaths, which people would have heard, means you're injected with the oath. I've been injected with an oath. The royals don't only use honours and oaths of allegiance to preserve their power. They use intimidation too, as Diana found to her cost. They demand absolute secrecy and loyalty from their subjects, and they stifle dissent. I think of the establishment, our establishment, as a kind of a, 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 legal, um, a legal mafia whose watchword, really, is the watchword of the, of, the, of the real mafia, omerta, silence. That's why many people regard them as gangsters. Gangsters in tiaras. And given Prince Philip's Nazi background, is it really so unthinkable that those at the top of the present-day British establishment might go to any lengths to rid themselves of a turbulent princess? Well, anything good I ever did, nobody ever said a thing, never said, well done, or was it okay? But if I tripped up, which invariably I did, because I was new at the game, a ton of bricks came down on me. Still, successful producer Dodie, wasn't he? I mean, what did he ever produce? <laughs> Fuck all. That's what he produced. Fuck all. He produced his inquest by dying, you know? Successfully getting himself killed. It's just a typical rich man's son, you know. Talentless son of a rich father, then pisses all his dad's money out the wall. You think of that stereotype? And that's duty. The media called this the Diana inquest, forgetting that it was also an inquest into the death of Dodie Fayad. In life, Dodie was described by the Duke of Edinburgh as an oily bedhopper. In death, he was dismissed by the press as a worthless playboy. But the inquest revealed these descriptions to be wholly untrue. He loved to make movies. He liked that ability to make movies. That was his chosen profession. The other good thing that came out of the inquest, why it was successful, is that it cleared Dodie's name. The evidence was overwhelming about the kind of guy he was. Not a playboy, actually. Straightforward, really caring, sensitive, funny man. And not a shit. He was smart, Dodie. What he understood everything about his father's profession and his profession. He told me on so many occasions, I want to run a studio. I want to have a studio of my own. Dodie first showed his cinematic talent in 1981 as executive producer of the Oscar-winning film Chariots of Fire. 
But Charlie Sophia, think of any British movie, have four Oscars in the same time. So it's ostensibly a film about a Jew yeah. taking on the establishment. That's right. I mean, the racism, you know, again. And this is, was unbelievable way of thinking that he had the idea. Following the crash in 1997, there was an outpouring of grief for Diana in the press, but the media virtually ignored Mohammed Al-Fayed's devastation over the loss of his son, Dodi. I've seen him crying, telling me how he shared a bed with Dodi every day of his life from 2 to 13, after his mother left. When you hear things like that, you know how close they were. Despite lasting six months and claiming to be an in-depth investigation, the inquest failed to find answers to many basic questions regarding Henri Paul. If he really was a chronic alcoholic, this would have been diagnosed during the stringent medical examination he underwent three days before the crash while renewing his pilot's license. But he passed the medical with flying colors. So why wasn't the doctor who gave him a clean bill of health called to the inquest or ever interviewed by the police? Why did Britain's top policeman, Lord Stevens, tell Omri Paul's parents in 2006, in front of other policemen who kept a written record of the conversation, that their son was definitely not drunk? He asserted that Henri was not drunk on the evening of the accident and that he was driving at a lower speed than indicated in the French proceedings. That is totally what Mr. Stevens told us. Yet six weeks later, Lord Stevens published a report claiming that Henri Paul was drunk. So, who was lying, Lord Stevens or Lord Stevens? After the crash, the police searched Henri Paul's apartment twice. Two searches were made of Henri Paul's home by the French police. More alcohol was recorded as discovered on the second search than on the first. The first time, all the police found was an unopened bottle of champagne and a quarter bottle of martini, which hardly supports the claim that he was an alcoholic. So the police returned a few days later. And would you believe it? This time, they claimed to have found enough alcohol to stock an entire bar. Beer, wine, Ricard, bourbon, vodka, port, champagne, cassis, pinot. There is sous. no obvious explanation for this. You must consider whether there are any sinister implications. Some might say that, on the contrary, there is a very obvious explanation and that its implications are very sinister indeed. The inquest heard undisputed evidence of Henri Paul's links to the French secret services, the Direction de la Surveillance du Territoire, and to Britain's MI6. I just remember reading this file and thinking it was interesting that, first of all, they had a Frenchman working for MI6, because it's actually quite rare to, to find someone who is French uh, who prepared to work for MI6, because they quite often don't. And secondly, I, because I'm a pilot myself, I remember this particular person having an interest in flying. So why did the coroner tell the jury in his summing up that Henri Paul had no links to the security services? Henri Paul's bank accounts show he received a total of 350,000 French francs of unexplained income during the final months of his life, mostly from cheques. Why didn't the inquest establish who had written those cheques or examine the transactions made on Henri Paul's five credit cards or allow the jury to see his mobile phone records? Why did Henri Paul go missing from the hotel for seven minutes at 10.36? Was he meeting an accomplice in the Place Vendôme? What about the gesture that Henri Paul made outside the Ritz moments before driving off in the Mercedes? Was it a signal to an accomplice? If the inquest had failed to answer one or two of these simple questions, 
you might put it down to incompetence. But its failure even to ask many of them can only have happened because the authorities already knew the answers and wanted to keep them hidden. Henri Paul was not drunk and was working for the secret services on the night that he died. Day 68. The only senior representative of the royal household to appear at the inquest was Sir Robert Fellows, the Queen's private secretary. On day 68, while under oath, he had the following interchange with Michael Mansfield. Were you on holiday at the time? I was on holiday from early, well, somewhere around the first week of August. Until? The week after the death of the princess and Mr. Al-Fayed. And I went back to Balmoral on the following Sunday, I think, after the funeral. So, would it be fair to say that you were not, in fact, therefore, at the palace or nearby when all of this was happening? I was at the palace, certainly, until the end of July. Fellows unequivocally told the inquest that he was on holiday for the entire period before and after Diana's death and did not return to work until after her funeral. Now, let's move to January 2011 and the publication of the diary of Tony Blair's press secretary, Alastair Campbell. 31st August. At about 4 a.m., I got a flavor of the royal establishment's approach when I had a conference call with Robert Fellows. You know about Diana, do you? She's dead. It was all very matter-of-fact. 1st of September, meeting at the Lord Chamberlain's office, attended by Robert Fellows. 2nd of September, 10 a.m., Fellows and I had a discussion. 3rd of September, Fellows called early. 4th of September, I had another discussion with Fellows. 5th of September, Fellows said we had all worked well together. Far from being on holiday, as he had claimed under oath, Fellows was at the very center of Diana's funeral arrangements overseeing her burial throughout the week. Fellows was the man that Diana had described to friends as one of the three names that I fear. He hates me. He will do anything to get me out of the royals. Sir Robert Fellows was made a lord in 1998. This little boy is called Philip. His full name is Philip Schleswig Holstein Sonderberg Glucksberg, and he grew up in Germany. He was raised amongst his Nazi in-laws, some of whom later became high-ranking members of the SS. His Nazi relatives then sent him to this school in southern Germany, where he studied for a while under the Nazi curriculum. Philip later recalled that there was much heel-clicking and shouts of Heil Hitler were compulsory. And here's Philip in Darmstadt, in the heart of Germany, in November 1937, attending a family funeral for some of his Nazi in-laws. Marching in front of a Siegheiling crowd, this is Philip, next to Christoph, his SS brother-in-law, and Philip, his Nazi stormtrooper brother-in-law. Imagine if a man with a past like this had somehow ended up marrying into British aristocracy. Well, he did. And as we know, he got first prize. He became the Duke of Edinburgh, also known as Prince Philip, after marrying Princess Elizabeth, the future Queen of England. British lawyers have warned us of 87 legal issues concerning this film. Several of those warnings concern the following interview. 
I think Prince Philip is, is somebody who is devoid of any internal sense of right and wrong. So deep down, he, he, he cares nothing about anybody else. He regards everybody else as potentially a threat. He is completely selfish. And that is very like uh, Fred West or any other uh, psychopathic individual. Oliver James is one of Britain's leading clinical psychologists. Yet lawyers told us that we could not include his professional diagnosis of Prince Philip in this film. So we looked for the current medical definition of psychopathy and discovered that most psychopaths are not convicted criminals but function normally in society. We also found that psychopaths tend to gravitate towards highly paid professions such as the legal profession and, oh dear, us filmmakers. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip have traditionally been presented to the public as role models for the rest of society, but why? Certainly, I mean, Philip's been in half the beds of England, including two of his wife's close family. But, uh, oh. do you want me to say that? Or yes, go on. Princess Margaret and Princess oh, Alexander. Stop it. I don't think that she was somebody who was a kind of would 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 have wanted to marry a psychopath. I think she must have got a very nasty shock when she found out quite how unpleasant he is. Um, but obviously, being the sort of person she is, she said, "Well, that's it. You know, I've got to stick with this, and da -da -da, and he's going to shag anything that moves, and I can't do anything about that." That's what they all do, anyway, isn't it? Almost everyone has heard rumours about Prince Philip's innumerable extramarital affairs. Yet newspapers have never published full reports, whereas they routinely expose the affairs of pop stars, footballers and other celebrities. Why? Because in Britain, the media dare not challenge the authority of those at the very top. I have a friend of mine who was at a party where he was, where he had to observe the disgusting sight of Prince Philip wearing a leather jacket, um, dancing to a Stones song with his hand halfway up the, up the skirt of some young woman. Um, this is, a, you know, and that's not an unusual event at all for well, Prince Philip. He's done that sort of thing many times. This isn't a question of morality. It's a question of media cowardice. The British press usually love nothing more than exposing the peccadilloes of eminent people, all except senior members of the royal family who are mysteriously exempt. Funny, that. You may think that we should have given Prince Philip a right of reply in this film. Well, we did, but he declined our invitation as did the entire royal family. And they are not the only ones. In fact, if you're wondering why you're not hearing from any members of the British establishment in this film, it's certainly not for want of trying on our part. We asked all of these pillars of the establishment to take part, and they all refused. I wonder why. What you are seeing is what the CCTV camera at the entrance to the Armour Tunnel was recording at the time of the crash. Nothing. Because it was switched off, even though it was usually switched on 24 hours a day. Was that just another coincidence? Or something more sinister? Well, you do ask a good question. You say, how is it that every single traffic camera in that yeah. tunnel was yeah. switched off for not working? Even though no cameras recorded the crash, it is beyond doubt that a white Fiat Uno collided with Dodie and Diana's car in the tunnel and contributed to their deaths. The French police tried to deny its existence at first, but too many eyewitnesses saw it and paintwork from a white Fiat Uno was found on the Mercedes where the two cars had collided. So, who was driving it? Suspicions fell on James Anderson, a photographer with connections to the Secret Services. He had been following Dodie and Diana earlier in the month during their holiday in the Mediterranean but he was not amongst the paparazzi who were waiting outside the Paris Ritz on the night of the crash. 
Anderson was a millionaire paparazzo, uh, a very well-known member of the paparazzi on the continent, made a great deal of money out of royal pictures, lived in some style in the French countryside. He told police that he wasn't in Paris on the night of the crash, but gave two completely different accounts of where he had been. His wife and son also gave him contradictory alibis. Privately, he told friends that he had been there in the tunnel in Paris that night. Crucially, Anderson owned a white Fiat Uno. It was said of this Fiat Uno that it was up on chocks and didn't work. Well, that appears to be untrue, too. It was driven many hundreds of miles around the French countryside. So the whole question of the Fiat Uno and who was driving it, which is, of course, absolutely crucial, totally crucial to the investigation, has never been resolved. And you have to say, why? In May 2000, Anderson's body was found in a blazing car in Woodland near Montpellier. In a Ministry of Defence field, shooting range field, in a car which was burned out and locked, but no keys were in the car or in his pocket. And the police claimed he had committed suicide. They claimed this, even though the fireman who found him says he saw two bullet holes in Anderson's skull. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to point out that it's difficult for a man to shoot himself twice in the head and then set fire to his own car before dying. I would like a monarchy that has more contact with its people. By the end of the inquest, so much suspicious evidence had been heard that the establishment coroner could take no chances. So he prevented the jury even considering murder as an option. His summing up lasted almost three days, during which he continually distorted the evidence, ignored much of the eyewitness evidence, and tried to convince the jury that the crash was nothing more than an accident. At the start, I told you it was not necessary to solve every subplot in the there story. There are certain matters relating to Henri Paul that simply cannot be resolved with any clarity. You've not heard in person from Professor Lecomte, Dr. Pepin and others concerned with the analysis of Henri Paul's sample. In common with most road traffic accidents, this collision did not appear to have a single cause. The relationship between Diana and Dodi had reached the point where it could no longer be tolerated. The conspiracy theory has been minutely examined and shown to be without any substance. Will you please now retire to consider your verdicts? But the one thing the establishment and the royal courts couldn't fix was the jury. 11 ordinary men and women who ignored the coroner's one-sided summing up and instead spent almost a week examining the evidence for themselves. Richard Wiseman, diary entry. It's day 93 and we're still waiting for the verdict. Nobody around me can understand why the jury are taking so long. The hacks all expected a verdict of accidental death to be returned within seconds. Oh, did you see those sandwiches they just took in for the jury? Yeah, I mean, my worry is they look far too good. You know, if they'd given them some curled up shite, you know, they'd agree by two, give the verdict by three and be home by four. Fact is, it's becoming painfully obvious that the jury, unlike the press, bothered to listen to the evidence, and they are now analysing it very, very carefully. A year after the inquest into the deaths of Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed, 
We asked a cross-section of ordinary people what the jury's verdict was. Accidental death. Purely an accident. It was accident. Was it accidental? Accidental death. It was an accident. Accidental death, I believe. It was an actual accident. Accidental death. Accidental death. The answers the public gave us were uniformly inaccurate. They said the paparazzi, didn't they? The paparazzi chasing her. I think, yes, it was the paparazzi. Around the world, people have been massively misled by the British media into believing that the deaths were an accident caused by the paparazzi. But in reality, the jury did not blame the paparazzi, and they decided that the crash was not a mere accident, but something much more serious. In the end, the jury delivered the most powerful verdict that the coroner had left open to them. Unlawful killing is defined in law as homicide or manslaughter, and the jury blamed the following vehicles, not the paparazzi. What is also interesting overlooked, I think, almost totally uh, by the media and commentators was the wording of the verdict. Well, the detail of this verdict was such that it was an unlawful killing contributed to by, and one of the factors was, following vehicles, not the paparazzi. paparazzi. Initially, journalists were confused, but within minutes, the BBC was reporting that the jury had blamed the paparazzi and the rest of the media followed the example of the British establishment's impartial broadcaster. Soon, the verdict had been spun by the media into an accident caused by the paparazzi. The paparazzi. And so, paparazzi. a lie got halfway around the world paparazzi. while the truth paparazzi. was still putting its boots on. Paparazzi. The altered verdict was still on the BBC's news website at the time of making this documentary. Whether it was a case that the commentators in the end, wanted it to be the paparazzi, and so immediately assumed that, and hadn't, and often some of them didn't really follow it on a daily basis. They might read in the odd transcript, and certainly a change of that kind, which was very important because following vehicles was a much bigger category than just paparazzi because of the reasons I've just given, that nobody, nobody either wanted to understand what that meant or if they did, weren't prepared to include it in their commentaries. The media declared that Mohammed Al-Fayed had been defeated. But in reality, the jury's verdict supported what he'd been saying all along. Diana and Dodi were unlawfully killed. 2011. And the British media, after seriously misreporting the verdict, refuse even to discuss what the verdict really means. Their deafening silence speaks volumes about the deeply troubling outcome. There was a feeling of openness about it. And yet, at the end of it, I have to say, uh, even as a, a supposedly educated scientific person, I, I would still say I don't feel any, you know, that at all confident that it got to the bottom of it. People will still go on thinking there is something happening here because they know the British establishment. They know their capacity for cover-ups. The newspapers in this country really don't want to upset the very top. The most bizarre thing is that normal people in this country who don't necessarily enjoy conspiracy theories, if you, if you, go, if you go to a bar, you'll find three people who go, ooh, but the royals did it, didn't they? I think most of the British public still believe it was dodgy. I believe Mohammed Al-Fayed will always believe it's dodgy. I believe the establishment wanted it all to just go away for whatever reason, and I don't know the answers to these questions. All I know is that the inquest has probably raised more questions than in the end it answered, and it answered a lot of questions. I would still say it was fantastically convenient for the monarchy 
that this woman died. Just think what she might be saying now if she hadn't died. Think what a problem it would have created for Camilla. Think of, you know, it would have created serious constitutional problems. Even she was perfectly capable of being somebody who started a movement to end the monarchy. The full facts about the Alma Tunnel crash may never be known, but we do know this for certain. Dodie and Diana were the victims of an unlawful killing. And various parts of the establishment, with their unerring instinct for mutual self-preservation, then seem to have rallied around to cover it up. They covered for each other and suppressed uncomfortable facts, and they think that they have got away with it. The British establishment think that they have got away with murder. But then what's new? They've been getting away with murder for centuries. Since the crash, some curious things have happened. Charles has married Camilla, as he'd always wanted to. MI6 now publicly admit that they have been involved in killings. Diana has been airbrushed out of official royal history. No action has been taken against the police chiefs who suppressed Diana's sworn statement, predicting that the royal family would kill her in a car crash. Instead, they both now sit in the House of Lords. Mohammed al-Fayed, was ordered by Prince Philip to take down the royal warrants that had hung for decades outside Harrods. And shortly before selling the store in 2010, and more in sorrow than in anger, he symbolically burned them in sight of his son's grave. I am destroying this royal crest as a tribute to my son, Dori. I feel that he is looking down on this today. There was a clear verdict of unlawful killing. So why has nobody been arrested? What is at the core of all this is racism. Powerful people in this country, my country, don't want to hear me talking about Prince Philip's Nazi background, but I have to because it's just 100% true. They wouldn't accept me or my son. And when he fell in love with Diana, they murdered them. Despite obtaining a verdict that vindicates his years of struggle, Mohammed al-Fayed fights on. Still grieving for his son, he has opted for truth rather than happiness. Legal action is continuing in France against the police chiefs who suppressed vital evidence, and the establishment cover-up is being steadily exposed day by day. Truth will out. And as more and more people come to understand what the damning inquest verdict really means, we may soon witness what the British establishment fears most. The end of the monarchy. <laughs>